going to invite you to take your Bibles to the book of Acts this morning. The Sunday school classes can head on out uh, to their class this morning too. Acts chapter 19, we're going to bring a message from verse 13 all the way down to verse number 41. And just to give you the background, the context of what's happening in Acts chapter 18, Paul has left Corinth and traveled to Cancrea and Ephesus where he has left Priscilla and Aquila. He travels on from there to Caesarea and finally to the home church of Antioch. And from there, he travels around Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening the believers. And in chapter 19, he arrives back in Ephesus again. And in verses, 19, verses 1 to 7 of chapter 19, Paul meets those 12 disciples. They hear the gospel, they believe, they're baptized, and they give evidence of the Holy Spirit's filling uh, through speaking in tongues and prophesying. And we're going to read from verse 8 to verse number 41. And the Bible says that he entered the synagogue and continued speaking out boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some were becoming hardened and disobedient, speaking evil of the way before the multitude, he withdrew from them and took away the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. And this took place for two years, so that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that handkerchiefs or aprons were even carried from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out. But also some of the Jewish exorcists who went from place to place attempted to name over those who had the evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches." And seven sons of one Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. And the evil spirit answered and said to them, I recognize Jesus and I know about Paul, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them and subdued them and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this became known to all, both Jews and Greeks, who lived in Ephesus, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was being magnified. Many also of those who had believed kept coming, confessing and disclosing their practices. And many of those who practiced magic brought their books together and began burning them in the sight of all. And they counted up the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. Now after these things were finished, Paul purposed in the spirit to go to Jerusalem after he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. And about that time there arose no small disturbance concerning the way. For a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, was bringing no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen of similar trades and said, Men, you know that our prosperity depends upon this business. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people, saying that gods made with hands are no gods at all. And not only is there danger that this trade of ours falls into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis be regarded as worthless, and that she whom all of Asia and the world worship should even be dethroned from her magnificence. And when they heard this, they were filled with rage and began crying out, saying, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed with one accord into the theater, dragging along Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia. And when, and when Paul wanted to go into the assembly, the disciples would not let him. And also some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him, repeatedly urging him not to enter into the theater. So then some were shouting one thing and some another. For the assembly was in confusion, and the majority did not know what cause they had come together, for what cause they had come together. And some of the crowd concluded it was Alexander, since the Jews had put him forward, and having motioned with his hand, 
sorry, Alexander was intending to make a defense to the assembly. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, a single outcry rose from them all as they shouted for about two hours, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And after quieting the multitude, the town clerk said, Men of Ephesus, what man is there after all who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is a guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of the image which fell down from heaven? Since then, these are undeniable facts. You ought to keep calm and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers of our goddess. So then, if Demetrius and the craftsmen who are with him have a complaint against any man, the courts are in session and the proconsuls are available. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you want anything beyond this, it shall be settled in the lawful assembly. For indeed, we are in danger of being accused of a riot in connection with today's affairs, since there is no real cause for it, and in this connection we shall be unable to account for this disorderly gathering. And after saying this, he dismissed the assembly. And we trust that God will add blessing to the reading of his word. Just to give you a recap from the last sermon we did, which was a couple of weeks back on the earlier part of the chapter, we talked about the impact of the gospel message. And we saw how the content of the gospel is in verse 8, the kingdom rule and reign of God over all creation. We saw the ministry of the gospel in verse 8. Paul's boldly speaking and reasoning and persuading the Jews and Gentiles about the kingdom of God. We saw the resistance to the gospel in verse 9. As the Jews become hardened, disobedient, and speak evil of the way. And then we saw the spread of the gospel in verse 10. As the gospel reached to all of Asia, the seven churches in Revelation, verses 2 and 3, are reached with the gospel during this time. And then fifthly, the confirmation of the gospel in verses 11 and so on, as God performs miracles through Paul. I want to remind us this morning, as we dive into our message, about what the Bible means by the kingdom of God. You remember that Paul is preaching about the kingdom of God in verse 8. The kingdom of God is God's sovereign rule over all his creation. All creation owes God its complete loyalty and obedience and worship because he is the sovereign, all-powerful, all-knowing, eternal, unchangeable God. And therefore, we owe him our loyalty and obedience and worship. And all who refuse to submit to his kingdom rule will be judged at the end of the age by God himself. And our Lord Jesus Christ is indeed the King of kings in God's kingdom. In Matthew 1, verse 1, we know that Jesus, in his humanity, is a descendant of David, the king. In Matthew 2, verse 2, Jesus was born the king. In Matthew 21, verse 5, he was announced as the king, coming to his people. But in John 19 and Luke 19, his people reject him as king. But in Matthew 27, verse 11, Jesus acknowledged his kingship to Pilate, And in verse 42 of chapter 27, he was crucified under the heading above his head. This is the king of the Jews. But in Matthew 25, 31 to 34, when Jesus comes in his glory, then he will sit on his glorious throne as the king and the nations will be gathered before him to be judged. Our Lord Jesus Christ is the king of kings and the Lord of lords turn page. And the kingdom of God has a relationship to the church. God's kingdom rule in Christ creates the church with Jesus Christ as its head. The church is the temporal gathering of God's kingdom people. The church witnesses to God's kingdom rule and reign to those around us by preaching the gospel and living as disciples in submission to Christ. The church serves as the instrument of God's kingdom. And as such, the church as a whole and every Christian within it must not look and sound and act like the world around us. That's probably the greatest problem facing the church in the day and age we live in, looking and acting and sounding like the church, the world around us. So Paul is preaching the kingdom of God to both Jews and Gentiles. Some of them are submitting to God in response to the message, and they're being radically changed, which brings no small disturbance to the Ephesus. 
So our message, in a nutshell, is this. As God's kingdom reign increases, spreading the good news of life and freedom and hope for those who repent and believe the gospel, the reign of Christ as Lord and Savior and King must produce radical change in you and I. We cannot keep on looking just like the world around us. There has to be a change. Why? Because the Bible simply says so. In Matthew 10, 25 and Romans 8, 29, where his disciples being conformed to his image were to be like Jesus and not to look like the world. In Ephesians 1, verse 5, we're adopted into God's family to portray the family image. We're to represent God and his message to those around us. In 1 Corinthians 6, verses 19 and 20, we're not our own. We have been bought with a price. We are under his authority. And in 2 Corinthians 6, verse 17, we're called out to be separate from the world. We live in this world, but we're not to be a product of its thinking. Christian discipleship means a radical change in you and I. And we're going to see how it was changing these people in Ephesus. Brothers and sisters in Christ, taking Christ's name, calling ourselves Christians, Christ men, must not be taken lightly. God is not interested in simply being a part of our lives. God has claimed our whole lives as his, and so we cannot. We dare not walk with one foot in the world and the other one in God's kingdom. For the simple reality is they're going in opposite directions, and it never works. So from our text... I want us to observe four points about God's kingdom rule. Number one, it refuses unbelieving imitators. Number two, it ruins ungodly business. Number three, it is rising unstoppable. And fourthly, it requires unreserved allegiance. And I want to finish with that. That's the most important point. So first of all, God's kingdom refuses unbelieving imposters. And you notice again in our text, verses 13 to 17. Itinerant, moving around from place to place, exorcists were attempting to invoke Jesus' name over evil spirits as one of their ways to attempt to compel evil spirits to act. Their words, I adjure you, in my NASB, mean to bind or to compel. And Sceva's seven sons are attempting it. And the evil spirit responds, literally what he says is, Jesus, I know. Paul I'm acquainted with, but who are you? (laughs) And the the scene, and we all got to chuckle at this, is a bit funny. One man rises up with a spirit in him and gives these other seven men a hiding and a half, and they flee out of the house naked and bruised because they have no authority to compel the spirit. Notice first that Sceva's seven sons do not have a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. The way they speak to the demon shows it. Jesus whom Paul preaches, not Jesus in whom we believed, they clearly know who Jesus is. They know Paul preached him as their own Messiah, but they're not believing in Jesus. They're not submitting to him. They're not filled with the Holy Spirit as all true believers are. They're still living in unbelieving rebellion against God. Their first response to Jesus should have been, to repent of their own sin, to believe the gospel, to seek to know and love and obey Jesus as their Messiah, their God and King. But no, they clearly do not know him, sorry, other than as a name to be used as an invocation to attempt to compel the evil spirit to obey. To them, Peter's words to Simon in Acts 8 and verse 21 are very true. You have no part or portion in this, Matter for your heart is not right before God. These seven men don't know the Lord. Remember also, the power to cast out demons is God's power alone. Jesus himself said in Matthew 12, verse 28, If I cast out demons by the Holy Spirit, or the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. What they're doing is the height of presumption using Jesus' name as a means for their own gain and notoriety while not exercising faith and obedience in Jesus. 
Remember also something else. I was preaching over at uh, Grace Community Bible Church last weekend and uh, Isaiah 6, and the Lord of hosts. The Lord our God is the Lord of hosts. You may have seen that title in Scripture as you read. All the hosts of angels and demons and mankind are under God's authority. While demons can cause great harm and injury, they're still under his authority. The extent of the activities, their activities, is and always has been limited by God. You go back to the book of Job, you read of Satan's interaction with the Lord, and you'll see there that Job, sorry, Satan is under God's authority. The demon clearly has freedom for God to turn on these exorcists and imposters who are attempting to imitate what God does through Paul and the apostles. The power of God is not equal to any other religion, faith, or ideology. Another option alongside all the other religious options. Christianity is not held up alongside Buddhism, Shintoism, Muslim, Islam, whatever else you want to put up there, all the crazy religions going around. It's not just one of many options. It's the only real, true option because we are all under God's authority. You say, what about the sinner? What about the unbeliever? They're under his authority. They're rebelling against it and pushing against it. But in a day to come, God will make absolutely sure that they know that their rebellion was against him because of their sin. The power of God is not equal to any other religion, faith, or ideology. God, working through Paul and the apostles, showed himself infinitely more powerful than any other pagan or cultic power. And from their failed experience, we learn a very valuable lesson. I'm going to quote uh, Dr. Derek Thomas. He wrote a commentary in the book of Acts. He said, God enables all only, try again, God enables only his true servants who are submissive to Christ's authority to advance his kingdom in this way. God only uses true, repentant, believing servants to advance his kingdom. Demons who spoke out and testified to Jesus' true identity were often silenced by the Lord because Jesus would not allow an unclean witness to testify to him. The name of Christ cannot be used by outsiders to God's kingdom as a means to gain notoriety and income without incurring judgment and trouble. In this case, it clearly did. Beloved, listen. Beware of imitators and imposters to the faith, attempting to advance God's kingdom without genuine saving faith in Christ. Why do we not do evangelism alongside Jehovah's Witness? If you ever come with us on a Saturday morning, you'll see in Noble Park, Wes Taylor has his spot. He has marked it out, staked it out. He goes there every time, same place. And right across the street, or sometimes just around the corner, there's a Jehovah's Witness fellow comes along with his little cart of tracks, and they stand there and try and give things out. And Wes, you know, figures captive audience and goes after him and gives him the gospel. And they try and trade tracks, and Wes gives him the gospel. Why don't we join forces with them? I mean, they're Jehovah's Witness, right? The reason we don't is they deny Christ's deity. They're not truly born-again, genuine believers. Why don't we join evangelistic forces with Roman Catholicism? Because they deny justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It's a pivotal, foundational uh, bulwark of our faith. I think R.C. Sproul described it as the one thing that absolutely everything else depends on. You can't do away with that. That's why we don't join forces with those who claim to be Christ's followers from Roman Catholicism. Why don't we share ministry with Orthodox churches, some of the Eastern Orthodox ones? In some ways, we're closer to them than the Catholicism, but we don't join forces with them because of their unorthodox view of the Trinity and the nature of Christ. We don't join force of those. But listen, that's one application. I want to bring another one. God only uses repentant, believing disciples to advance his kingdom through the local church's internal ministries, through external evangelism, through national and overseas missions. But there is a requirement 
a responsibility placed on all who would stand in a pulpit or teach a Sunday school class or lead a Bible study or do evangelism or whatever form of ministry that we're involved in. And that responsibility is to be a clean vessel, to be living in ongoing repentance, ongoing growth in the faith, to be continually putting off the old man and putting on the new man, which is Christ. And you see that in Colossians 3. I always get a little bit nervous when young men want an eager for the pulpit. He's thinking, oh, he's just trying to protect his pulpit. He's just trying to keep his pulpit for himself. No, not at all. But I think there's also a very clear call to understand the responsibility you take when you stand up here. And trust me, I don't take it lightly for a second. Because I know what the Bible says about those who would be teachers of God's people. I will receive a stricter judgment than you will because I chose, not chose, I responded to a call and obeyed and now stand in a pulpit. Beware. God uses clean vessels. You say, you're not perfect, so then how can God use you? No, I'm not perfect, but I'm, on, I'm constantly striving to put off the old man and put on the new man, constantly striving to live in ongoing repentance and faith in God that God might use me. God's kingdom refuses ungodly imposters like these Jewish exorcists, and God's kingdom requires his disciples, especially those who teach the faith, to live in ongoing repentance of sin, striving for godliness and holiness. Beloved, does that attitude mark your life? Does it mark mine? Is that what you're striving for? to live clean before the Lord, to walk before him as close as you possibly can so that God may use you. Beloved, before we stand and minister, to teach, to lead, do we take time to clean out our hearts and lives before God, to confess our sin and seek his forgiveness, to be reconciled and restored to brothers and sisters in Christ because God uses clean vessels. If I can add this, before you come to worship on Sunday morning, you take time to examine your life before the Lord, to confess sin and put it right, to plead with God for forgiveness, that as you come and worship, you might not hinder anybody else, but that you might also enjoy worship before the Lord with a holy heart. That's what God requires. Well, worship the Lord, how? In the beauty of holiness. Yeah. Notice, secondly, God's kingdom ruins ungodly businesses. Notice in that long passage in verse 21 to verse 41, we have Demetrius and the silversmith's complaint. Gaius, Aristarchus, and Alexander are dragged into the theater with the mob, and Paul is prevented from going in. And the town clerk is used by God unwittingly for the dissolving of the whole fair. So what's the point of the story? We read through the whole thing. What's the point of the story? The kingdom of God was increasing and advancing. The Jews in their synagogues were hearing about Jesus as their Messiah and were turning to him in faith for salvation. They were leaving the synagogue and joining themselves with Paul as followers of the way. But not only that, Paul's preaching and reasoning and persuading the Gentiles that Jesus is the anointed son of the one true and living God and that all mankind's idols made with human hands are no gods or goddesses at all. And many Gentiles were turning from the worship of idols. In this case, uh, my Bible has Artemis. Your Bible might have the word Diana. Same thing, two different translations, the same word. And they're turning to Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. The kingdom of God was increasing and advancing, and the proclamation of the gospel was having a positive effect and impact on its recipients and a negative effect on all the ungodly businesses in that area. And by the way, if your memory is good, you remember, this isn't the first time. Anybody want to try to remember what the other time was just before? Think about Philippi. There was a slave girl, remember? And she was making her masters a fortune, telling everybody's a fortune and giving like readings and stuff. And what did Paul do? 
He was annoyed in his spirit because she kept coming along behind him, talking away about who he was and what he was doing. And he commanded the spirit to come out of her, and she was set free. And the owners lost their income, and they got a little bit grumpy about that and dragged Paul and Silas into the market and before the magistrates. And they were taken, they were beaten, they were put in prison in the inner stocks, and we know how God set them free. This isn't the first time it's happened to them. But the point is the same. Wherever the kingdom rule of God is proclaimed in the gospel, God works to bring salvation to men and women, repentance of sin and faith in God and submission to Christ. Ungodly actions and habits and lifestyles are exchanged for godliness of lifestyle. And the businesses that cater to and promote ungodliness suffer loss. And God's kingdom rule and reign confronts and exposes ungodliness. But the dwellers in darkness love their darkness more than the light, especially when it earns them some money. So they work to preserve their darkness and keep others enslaved to it. In our day, it's not pagan temples or shrines so much. It's brothels and pubs, gambling establishments. It's abortion clinics, the sex shops, the drug dealers. And the surest way to remove those businesses is to pray and work for the gospel to reach into those places and compel those who are there, customers and owners, to be reached with the gospel, to trust in Christ, repent of sin, and be saved. You've all heard the stories of the Welsh Revival. I think I've mentioned them half a dozen times from here. When Welsh Revival spread in the 19th century through Wales, whole communities radically changed. Why? Pubs went out of businesses, sorry, pubs went out of business, brothels went out of business, gambling establishments shut down, the cops had nothing to do. I think that's where the eating donuts came from, who knows. But they had nothing to do because there was no sin, there was no crime in those communities. And in a sense, what's happening here in Ephesus is the same kind of thing. And Demetrius and his friends are like, wait a minute, we're going to lose credibility, we're going to lose our business if we don't do something about this, and so they act. But brothers and sisters, we ought not to be surprised when those who gain income from ungodliness rise up in anger and retaliation against Christians who preach the gospel because darkness hates the light for light drives darkness away. Ungodliness hates godliness because it exposes it for what it truly is. So when we see those kind of business owners getting grumpy at Christianity, Praise God and give thanks. Keep praying. Keep preaching the gospel. So that those who have frequent those establishments, those that give them the business base to keep going, will be drawn away by the gospel and changed. Third point. God's kingdom is, un, is increasing and unstoppable. And before I go to my last point, which to me was the most challenging, I just had to take some time to point out three great lines in this text that Luke makes. God's kingdom is increasing and spreading in Acts just as surely as Jesus promised. In Matthew 24, verse 14, he said, this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. In Acts 1 and verse 8, Jesus said to his disciples, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. Some would say that's Australia. I think they're right. But the gospel's still going out. It's still spreading and increasing. God's kingdom, his rule and reign over all creation, is steadily increasing. It's what God revealed to Daniel in chapter 2 would happen. You remember Daniel 2? Nebuchadnezzar's great uh, vision of the statue, the great statue of all different types of metal describing the different kingdoms throughout history. The last kingdom is the toes of the feet are a mixture of clay and iron, and the great stone not cut with hands crushed the statue. And in Daniel 2 verse 35, he says... It became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. In Daniel 2, verse 44, Daniel interprets a dream for King Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar, saying, In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all those kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. 
The kingdom of God is increasing unstoppable. Why? If you have to ask, stop and think. Whose kingdom is it? God's. Whose power is behind it? God's. Who ensures it will, will carry on? God. Who said it would? God. So if you've got a problem with it, that your problem's not with me. Listen. God's kingdom is increasing and unstoppable. Look what Luke writes in our text. In verse 10, he says, All who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord. The gospel was increasing in those days in Asia. In verse 17, the name of the Lord was being magnified. What does that mean? It was being spread. People were falling in reverence before the name of Jesus, recognizing it was something so much greater than the name of a dead Jewish carpenter. It was the name of the living God. In Acts verse 20, sorry, the word of the Lord was growing mightily. And Luke is simply repeating what he said already in Acts a couple of times. In Acts 6 and verse 7, the word of God kept on spreading and the number of disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem. In Acts 12 and verse 24, uh, Luke writes, the word of the Lord continued to grow and be multiplied. In 13 verse 49, the word of the Lord was being spread through the whole region. In verse 20 here, the word of God was growing mightily and prevailing. The kingdom of God was and still is increasing and advancing. And beloved, listen. We live in a Western world, and the churches in this Western world are increasingly turning to secularism, and the people are slowly trickling away. Churches are closing and shrinking and getting smaller. And you know what our assumption is? Because we think, you know, the West is the the whole thing, really. I mean, everything happens, happens in the West. So what's happening here must be happening around the world. It's not true. I got a shock of a lifetime yesterday looking through a website on the growth of Christianity. I discovered this uh, in January 2022. So just uh, 16 months ago, Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary in the United States, which is still, as I understand it, a fairly mainstream conservative evangelical seminary, did a study, and this is what they found. I'll give you five of seven truths they put forward. Five encouraging truths that the kingdom of God is steadily increasing. Number one, atheism has slowed down in its increase to less than 0.2% per year. That means there's less less atheists now by percentage than there was in 1970. That blew me away. Secondly, Christianity continues to grow. Evangelicals are increasing by an average of 1.9% per year. Still increasing. Christianity is growing faster in Africa than anywhere else in the world. They gave a number. They projected the rate of increase in in Christianity in Africa. By 2025, I believe it was, it was something like uh, close to a billion people. You go, what happened? Christianity is growing faster in Africa than anywhere else in the world. Don't quote me on that last figure. I'll have to check and make sure. If you come and ask me, I'll find it for you. After Africa, in Asia, and South America, Christianity is steadily growing. Christianity continues to spread out. It's less concentrated in those major countries like England, Australia, America, Europe. It's not concentrated so much, but the Christianity is spreading out. Less concentration. There's more Bibles being printed now than ever before. In 1900, the year 1900, there were 5 million copies printed. In the year 2000, 54 million Bibles printed. In 2025, they estimate there'll be 100 million Bibles a year. It's not stopping. My wife argues that the 100 million Bibles a year is because I keep buying new Bibles, but that, she may have a point, but who knows. <laughs> so people are going, yeah, it's true. It's spreading. It hasn't stopped. And one of the problems, brothers and sisters, we need to be encouraged. They also said this, persecutions which were climbing like crazy until the year 1990 to 2000 was the highest decade period of persecutions against the church. And one thing is happening. It's leveled off and starting to sink because I think people in the West are turning away. When persecutions are up, what does that mean? 
The gospel is offending and challenging and confronting the world around it. We're looking forward to the day when persecution will land on our shore. It's not far away. And when it does, I hope and pray that God will do here in Australia and America and Europe what he did in Korea and Middle East and other places like that, where as the gospel was persecuted, it majorly grew instead. Korean churches grew massively in the years, the 1900 to up to 2000. Huge, huge growth as it was trying to be crushed by the outside world. But listen, the point's the same. God's kingdom is increasing and growing. It's not over yet. The gospel is still being proclaimed. So be encouraged, brothers and sisters. And lastly, I want to make the most challenging part of the message. I want to bring it to all of us. And by the way, when I preach like this, I'm standing beside you listening because I need to hear this. I've worked over it for a number of hours in my study. I know how much I need to hear what comes next. God's kingdom requires an unreserved allegiance. In chapter 19, the gospel came to Ephesus and confronted a pagan culture. Idol worship and reverence to Artemis was declining and being ruined because the gospel was spreading and changing people. The good news of God's kingdom rule was having an impact on all their lives. First century Christian Jews could not continue in centuries-old sacrificial worship. Christian Jews were leaving the synagogues and joining house churches That rolls off my tongue, but I don't think anybody, unless you're a Jew, understands just what that means. That's massive. I think uh, Netflix did a documentary on Jews who leave the Judaism in in our day. I I haven't watched all of it. I watched skipped through little bits of it. It looked really good. It'll give you some idea of what that impact would be like for them leaving Judaism. It's huge. Christian Jews were leaving synagogues and joining house churches. Christian Jews in Ephesus were accepting their Gentile brothers and sisters as fellow citizens with the saints, as of God's household, just as Paul reminded them in Ephesians 2, 12 to 22. They did not require Christian Gentiles to be circumcised or keep the Mosaic law. That's a radical change for them. Allegiance to Christ produces change. And I would argue if there's no change, there's reason to question the allegiance. I'm saying that to my life too. First century Christian Gentiles were also brought to great change. They could not continue in pagan idolatry. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and chapter 10, Paul wrote to address the issue rising in that church of the difficulty of eating meat, knowing to have it was knowing it had been offered to idols in worship. In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul makes a very clear point. They cannot continue to practice a syncretistic faith, partaking of both the Lord's table and the table of idols. In 1 Peter 4, Peter is writing to Christian Gentiles, and he makes the point to them, the time for ungodliness is now past, since we have committed to live for the will of God, not ourselves. Listen to what he says. He said, Christ, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lusts, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, abominable idolatries. And he goes on to talk about how the people in Ephesus, no, sorry, the people in Peter's context who watched the Christians turn away from that couldn't believe they were doing it. It's like when we come to know Christ, our behavior, our lifestyle, our language, our thinking, what we watch and listen to, all changes. And people standing beside us looking and kind of going like, what happened to you? Um, Paul Washer, one of my, I guess he's a hero sort of thing, uh, talked about his salvation. Before he got saved, Paul Washer was a fast, hard-drinking law student in West Texas. And he went from that 
walking around with an angry look on his face so much. He was a, a weightlifter and a, did all kinds of martial arts and stuff, and people didn't mess with him. He was known to be a violent man. He went from that to standing in the field with a box of Bibles and gospel tracts, and as he was handing out Bibles and gospel tracts to people walking by, he was crying uncontrollably and saying, Don't you get it? He died for you. He died for me. The gospel radically changed him. It radically changed these people as well. The kingdom of God that Paul was boldly speaking and reasoning and persuading them to submit to required an unreserved allegiance to Christ as Savior, as Lord, as King. These disciples of Christ, Jews and Gentiles, submitted to his lordship and they were radically changed. Notice what happened. Notice how God used the Jewish exorcist, their embarrassed, embarrassing hiding they got, to bring the Christian Gentiles to a costly repentance. The news spread and great fear fell upon them all. And this is in verses 16, 17, and 18. Both Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus heard the story, no doubt. And the Jesus whom Paul preaches was all of a sudden regarded to be infinitely more powerful than their idols were. And the result was, all of a sudden, Christians had a desire to be rid of their involvement in the magical practices associated with Ephesus, Artemis and the idols, and so on. And in verses 17 and 19, the believers are coming, they're confessing, and they're disclosing those practices. The the thinking behind that, you've ever heard magicians, you know, you never tell how the trick's done? That's what they say. That's not just a new thing. That goes all the way back into history. Because the disclosing of an incantation, the disclosing of their spells, the disclosing of all their practices was known to strip the power away from them. So what they were doing is coming and confessing what they had been doing, disclosing what they had been doing, and the power of it was lost. And then they burnt the books to make sure nobody could ever reuse those books for something else. These devoted followers of Christ practiced a costly repentance, an unreserved allegiance to Christ. And brothers and sisters, that lands on us as well. We need to take a long, hard look, brothers and sisters, at the lives we are living. I mean we, not you. We are living. Take a long, hard look at what goes on in our life, what we allow on our TV screens we watch on Netflix or other movies, channels, the books we read, the movies we go to, the places we hang out at. Our lives are to be radically changed for Jesus Christ. That's what he's calling us to. Listen, one of the things I get so frustrated at hearing about, God is so lovely and loving. He is. That's true. But, you know, this is the offer of salvation. You can do what you want with it. You can take it or you can leave it. And God doesn't mind either way. Rubbish. It's nonsense. That's not what the Bible says at all. God cares very much. He is king. All of creation belongs to him. Every single one of us was designed and created by him for his glory. He cares very much about how we live our lives. The fury of hell for eternity will portray that message like no other. And the other way to portray it is the cross of Jesus Christ. God does care. Christian, we are no longer free to participate in our culture's ungodly practices. Christian, the call to follow Christ is an unreserved, is to be as an unreserved allegiance to him because he is Lord. The problem for us is that word Lord has been watered down and washed down. We use it so much. We use it in songs. We use it, you hear it on TV. And it's sarcastic, just commonly used. He's Lord. Brothers and sisters in Christ, that has to mean something for us. More than just a title like Mr. It's so much more. Our culture, we have to look and sound and act and behave differently because our hearts have been changed. Have they not? 
If our hearts have been changed, surely the actions that flow out of that heart must be different. Right? Amen. Amen. Christian, the call to follow Christ is, an un, is to call, follow as an unreserved allegiance. Our culture freely practices sex before and outside of marriage, but we are called instead to godliness, holiness, and purity. Our culture practices carelessness in marriage, marrying, divorcing, remarrying, even polyamorous relationships, which is multiple, like threesomes, sorry. Not to mention homosexual and bestial relationships. It's all going on in our culture. But we are called to display Christ and his bride through lifelong marriage. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we're called to be different. Our culture practices excessive use of alcohol, tobacco, and recreational drugs. But we're called to live sober and godly to please God in all respects. We don't need the mind-altering stuff. They do it for a high. I know. I, in my day, I did it too. I know what it's like to walk into a, I can't believe I did this, into a high school principal's office, forgetting the fact that I had just smoked a very large joint. He figured it out in 20 seconds flat, I'll tell you that much. Not my best moment. We don't need that. You and I don't need alcohol and tobacco and drugs. Why? Because we know what it is to have joy in the living God. We know what it is to have joy and satisfaction that goes beyond anything a drug can give you or a whole bottle of scotch can drown out. We don't need it. We have a living God instead. And we've been called to live lives that are morally pure and upright. Our culture makes frequent use of fortune and future-telling means, horoscopes, medians, seances, Ouija boards, tarot cards, all that stuff. But we as Christ's followers are called to live by faith in the one who truly does know the future and in infinite wisdom does not reveal it to us beyond what Scripture states. So if you're thinking about the future, if it's not discussed in the Bible, you're better off not knowing, Right? Who wants to open up tomorrow's horoscope? Today you'll die in a violent car accident. Didn't want to know that. God knows. He's got it safe. He knows what he's doing with us. Our culture is making increasing use of extra-biblical counseling, psychology, and psychiatry to resolve personal problems completely apart from God. But we as Christ's followers have been given God's inspired manual written by our creator to counsel and care for our psycho, our psyche. The word means soul. We have everything we need to get through this life in this book and with the spirit of God in us. Brothers and sisters in Christ, listen, the gospel of the kingdom of God is a call and a command to us to come to him who created us, to come to him who died to save us, to the one who lived his life in sinless, perfect obedience to God and his law, to the one who submitted himself into the hands of wicked and cruel men. To come to the one who shed his precious blood to atone for our sin, who suffered and endured the unspeakable wrath of Almighty God in our place, who died, was buried, and rose again for our justification, who ascended to the heights of heaven and his glory, who is indeed coming again soon and very soon. May it be today. He Jesus Christ, our Lord, calls us to come and submit to him in faith, in repentance, and obedience. He calls us to come out and apart from this present world and its darkness. While we live in it, we're no longer to be a part of it or a product of its thinking. You and I are under not just new management, new ownership. Because he does. He owns our lives. We're under the eternal authority of the highest authority, God himself. He calls us, and he, as he called them, to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Christ. And you know the best part of the whole thing is? He didn't leave, it, leave us to do it on our own. Praise God, he did not leave us on our own to fulfill the call to discipleship. 
The call to come and repent and believe imparts the strength and the power to do it. The word of the living God says in Philippians 2.13, it is God who works in us both to will and to do for his good pleasure. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. My friend, my brother, my sister in Christ, I don't know what's going on in here truly, but God knows. And God, if he is speaking to you, he's calling you to repent of that sin, Christian, that you've allowed to sit into your life and it's ruining your life. I plead with you to repent of it. Put it aside. Turn and follow the Lord. If you're sitting here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, maybe you got brought here by somebody, a friend or a loved one, a family member, brought you along. I plead with you, listen. The God of heaven... He is in absolute and highest authority over all creation. He created you for his glory to live lives of holiness and infinite joy at the same time. But because of your sin, you're disobeying the living God. There now awaits you judgment at God's hand. But God also has provided a savior for you that you would not have to perish for eternity because of your sin. And I'm calling you, I'm pleading with you, repent of sin and believe the gospel. What a great Savior we have. What an almighty King and Lord we serve. Amen? Amen. Would you stand with me? We're going to pray and then we'll sing uh, one last song this morning. Let's pray. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we just give thanks again. We thank you, O God, that you are indeed in authority. None placed you there. You have always been there. None can bring you down. You are the almighty, all-powerful, unchangeable God. And Father, this morning, as a company of people, we just bow in worship before you. Father, we thank you and we praise you, O oh God, that the Lord Jesus Christ came. He suffered, suffered beyond what our human minds can comprehend. He suffered the full weight of your anger and your wrath against me and against all in this room and all who would ever be born. Father, we give thanks. We praise you, O oh God, for such a Savior and such a salvation. Father, some hard things were said today. Father, I know my own heart and my own life before you. And Lord, I pray that you would continue to deal with me. Father, deal with all of us. Lord, we would be a people who are fit to be used, washed and cleansed, filled with the Spirit of God, living according to the Word of God and the power of the Holy Spirit by faith in you. Father, we long to see this world, the world we live in, change for the gospel. But, Father, we rejoice. We give thanks that the gospel is still spreading. The kingdom of God is still growing. It's not over yet. But, Father, at the same time, we long to see the Lord Jesus Christ face to face. Father, may it be even today. We cry out to you, O God, for these things. And we pray in the precious name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.